step back from that ledge, my friend. You could cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in. And if you do not want to see me again, I would understand. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we want to talk today uh, about whether or not tragedy should change our thinking. And, of course, this is in the uh, still ongoing aftermath of the uh, shooting in Orlando where 49 people were killed at the Pulse Club Uh we're not totally sure what was going on with the shooter, but we know that, one, he purposely uh, targeted uh, a predominantly uh, gay nightclub, um, that he was a Muslim, um, that he emigrated to Florida from Queens, New York. <laughs> so he, uh, uh, he was a naturalized or naturally born U.S. citizen. Um and that during the aftermath or during the shooting, during the standoff, he did claim, uh, pro- proclaim allegiance to ISIS. Um, his f- parents were born or from Afghanistan. So he seems to have a, had a lot of psychological issues. He was abusive um, to his first wife. Uh, his coworkers complained about him um, doing hate speech. Um, his preoccupation with the homosexual community, uh, that remains to be seen what that was about. Uh, it may be more than just him being a fundamentalist against that behavior. It may have something to do with his own conflicted self, but, uh, but what we know is 49 people are dead, 25 people are still in the hospital, four of them in critical condition, and a community has been uh, changed forever. Yeah, I, I think it's, 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 this is the biggest gun is this the biggest number of shooting deaths ever? The mass, right? the largest mass shooting in in history. Yeah, uh, although it should be noted that uh, mass shootings actually have become a regular occurrence in this country. One third of all mass shootings in the world 
happen in the United States. And if you're keeping track at home, in our last podcast, we we uh, stated 75% of the world's drug use is done in this country. And uh, we have the highest prison rate of any developing country. And yeah, per capita. Per capita. And we also uh, lead the world in mass shootings, um, unless you're in a war zone. And actually, our statistics are pretty high for war zones, too. Yeah. USA. USA. Yeah. But we, rather than, you know, again, we've talked about the gun issue. We've talked about different things here. We've certainly talked about uh, about Muslims and the immigration issue. The, the larger question for me right now, not the larger question, but the question that I've been thinking about, should tragedies change the way we think about things? And I'm thinking particularly uh, in terms of uh, may this be one of the, one more hurdle over a greater acceptance for the, you know, uh, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, and queer um, community in our country. What do you mean hurdle? Like, uh, you mean, it's same, I don't understand what you mean by hurdle. Well, I, yeah, maybe hurdle is the wrong term, but it's interesting. I've been, you know, reading some of the folks, some even some uh, religious leaders that are in that community, and they said, this is it, you know. Uh, but, you know, this is, <laughs> it's it's time for us to take another step into acceptance, being accepted in our culture, and particularly this uh, person, who I, I think I will not name him. Uh, uh, he is someone who's fairly prominent uh, in in certain circles and and uh, is, does editorial work. But this was on his Facebook page, and he was just saying, you know, I'm I'm really tired of trying to accommodate religious attitudes that are prejudiced against. Uh, who I am uh, as a gay man. And so this, for me, is the end of being uh, open to even having discussions with people who disagree with me about that. And again, it's personal. It uh, He is a gay man, and this was a hate crime uh, against the gay community. But if you look in both, not only, I think, culturally or politically, but also religiously, uh, you know, tragedies and disasters often do change the way people think about things. Yeah. Yeah, I think they do, and I, I I do think that we are in a in a time of unprecedented division in this country. Like Dan Carlin just did a common sense uh, podcast where he talked about his fear that like we need reconstruction, like something like the reconstruction yeah. period, but we're not. There was no civil war yet, but he just says you know there's there's so many people he feels like if you like. If the republic were to fall apart, there's a lot of people he thinks that wouldn't disturb because so many people don't want to live with people in this country. Like, right, and it, he also points out it's no longer regional. Yeah. In other words, um, social media enables you to to interact with people and see what they're saying. Like, it, you can't get away from it. You can't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's. So I think that on some level, that is at a, a level of intensity, and maybe again in a different, even not just quantitatively but qualitatively different because of social media which makes which brings the people that you can't say or even like you know it's 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 got the uh, the ability to reveal things about your maybe your neighbors and other things views and and, and whatnot that you might not have discovered and play conversation on a day-to-day basis now you're sort of i think it it, it can create such an adversarial lens on right. reality right yeah and and I think so. You know, on one level, disasters and crises actually bring people together 
in some in some ways. Uh, I'm I'm reading a new book by Sebastian Junger. Uh, he wrote uh, Perfect Storm. He wrote the book War. Uh, it's called Tribe, and he actually did. Uh, he was embedded with a group in Afghanistan. He and his, I think Harrington, the young, the man who was killed in Libya. I think they were did that famous documentary about being embedded with that a platoon in uh, Afghanistan. But he himself has suffered from post traumatic stress, um, and it led him to do some studies. and He and he found that uh, part of the problem is in our culture is this kind of isolation. You know that there that we both live in a relatively stress uh, free environment from what would traditionally be stressors. You know, marauding tribes, uh, uncertainty in the food supply. Uh, you go on and on. I mean, we we know of a hurricane's coming. My heavens, now we can even <laughs> predict tornadoes coming. Uh, but for the majority of human history, people were dependent on living in small tribal groups, maybe, you know, ideally around 60 people or so, and that we were used to being together and that you were used to being uh, dependent on these folks and, and that in in reality – because of this connectedness, um, even though you lived in much more tumultuous times, um, there was a kind of, it, it created a kind of comfort and security. And he says one of the great problems of, of stress and anxiety and depression in our current time is this isolation. So when you have something like this kind of uh, tragedy, uh, and I'm, you know, good to 9-11, maybe the most dramatic um, the most dramatic example of this, and this is the second most deadly terrorist attack um, on our uh, on our systems since nine eleven. Um, people do come around and gather together. So, on one level, tragedies can can um, for at least temporarily transcend the the modern Western tendency to be separate from each other. So, in that way, that creates, for instance, creates all kinds of opportunities for people to talk differently about something and to and to maybe even change their ideology a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Paul Zoll just did a podcast about this phenomenon and talked about watching on the news people at a vigil, like people at these vigils, right. and which is saying that we've seen so many of these vigils happen and they, they come and go pretty quickly. And he was saying that like there's not an enduring power in – experiencing grief in, in, in a mediated way. So, that, you know, like basically people, the people that really feel this in, in the deep sort are people that really lost someone right, that they knew right. and th that, and that like on some level everyone has, but everybody at that vigil has dealt with loss and has reason to grieve and everybody knows broken heartedness. And on some level that, that like there's this a way to get at it is through this mediated experience. And I think that that's, True on lots of levels, like that we seek mediated experience. We we sort of seek mediated grief experiences. We seek me mediated anger experiences. I mean, like the, a lot of times, I think what happens in, in our interconnectedness in social media is actually it it makes us transfer the stuff that's in in us outside of us. Um, sometimes to maybe connect with the pain that we should, we, it would be good for us to connect with. But we can't handle it, so we kind of transfer mm -hmm. it to a to a like a, a mass grieving. Kind of situation, or sometimes I think in a more 
you know, a deleterious thing, you know, where we're kind of scapegoating people because stuff that's going on inside of us. Right. No, it can go, it can go, you know, both for good or for ill. And, and I also think it gives us an opportunity to feel connected. We're all coming together and, you know, here's something to care enough about, to grieve about. Um, and I, I, I do think that it gives us an opportunity to think about what's, what's really important. For instance, um, you know, it, it, all kinds of statistics and studies have been shown that attitudes change when you come in contact with the people that for what the, whatever the other is for you, that your attitudes change when you're um, when you're in regular contact or in contact with someone from who, who you thought is the other. Well, when you have this kind of uh, cataclysmic event, in some levels, we all for at least a minute are together against the other, which whether it be hate or whether it be, you know, the randomness of how these things happen, whatever, you know. Uh, uh, but I think there's also the danger that we can become to the point where we just kind of accept, well, this is part of part of what we do. I mean, Senator Mark Rubio was quoted saying, well, you know, this happens all over the country. It was Orlando's turn. And, uh, I, I don't. He certainly wasn't. I don't. Again, I'm, I don't think he was intending to to imply what that can imply. That well, we just have to accept it. It's now as Orlando's turn to uh, uh, to have tragedy and someone. Little was, Marco. <laughs> it'll be someone else's turn. That's Little Marco. <laughs> I mean, he looked like someone is you know throwing water all over him. Little Marco. <laughs> Yeah, talk about coming up small during the time of uh, national uh, crisis. Uh, the one who will not be named certainly has done that so far this week. But we, we, I, trans, I, I transgress. It sounds like a deity. Like you, <laughs> don't say, I, you don't say the name. I digress. I'm going to try not to say the name in this, in this podcast because okay. it's not about that person. Okay. So, yeah. So should tragedy change our thinking? I saw one level you're saying that it has a capacity to humanize because – the dehumanization of so many people and the tragic and awful nature of it, you know, you kind of, I mean, we do have these uh, empathy triggers. I mean, like, you, you know, like they've studied how, if you see someone smacked that your, your face will respond because you mirror. Right. So, I mean, maybe there's kind of a mirroring response. Yeah. Of course, in terms of biblical or religious history, um, I mean, whole shifts have happened in, in the way, uh, the faith has been interpreted because of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, both in uh, 587 BCE and also in 70 uh, CE. Uh, certainly, our our faith uh, began in the midst of an incredible violent tragedy in the in the crucifixion of Christ, and even throughout the history, uh, some people. Now, I think this is simplistic, but. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. It was in the 17th century when an earthquake struck Lisbon oh, on yeah. Easter. Oh, yeah, 16th century, yeah. Yeah, it was the 16th or 17th. Or I thought early, it, was 16th. Early, no, it was early 17th. Yeah, it was, it was early 17th. Like 1605, or maybe that's not right, but somewhere around that time. And some people say that that was the beginning of, you know, the end of of a unified Christian worldview. Now, I think something called the Reformation that happened before Well, Susan Neiman in her book, yeah, uh, that's what said. The yeah, History right. of Evil, or uh, e Evil Modern History or something. I forget the title, but it's a great book. She talks about that's when philosophers got did away with the 
concept of natural evil. Right. And then she talks about, in the rest of the book, about how philosophers in general haven't grappled with evil, and yet kind of argues in a subtle and interesting way that anytime we're distinguishing between is and ought, we're talking to some degree about evil very right, often, and how right. basically this is ignored at philosophy's own peril because it, you know, focuses on things like language games and logical positivism and things like that. Well, and, and say, look at the Holocaust, for instance. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that came that were changed because of that tragedy, uh, the birth of the nation of Israel, uh, the whole reevaluation of how the New Testament has been taught, uh, a reevaluation of, of, you know, centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. So people's minds and ideas were changed in part because um, even passive, even some passive prejudice or some passive ideology that allowed something like that to happen, um, you know, you have to look within yourself to say, okay, uh, I, I wasn't there, but am I thinking in ways that could have let me be complicit in, in such a horrendous event? Yeah, I think, I tend to think like the, the changes that happen as a result of tragedy maybe are more passive changes or changes. Like I tend to think that, uh, somebody, uh, Mandy Smith, a friend of mine, posted something that one party will say the solution to Orlando is to get guns out of the country. Another will say it's to get Muslims out of the country. But neither can really offer any analysis of human brokenness in a meaningful way. And I thought there's something interesting about that because I think that oftentimes, you know, there's the Rahm Emanuel quote, never you know, miss the opportunity in a good tragedy, that kind of thing, or, right. or a good crisis. I, I never miss the opportunity in a crisis. I think that, like, you know, it just in something like gun control, uh, it, 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 I, I think we get so emotional so quickly. And it, it, the, the, when you look at, like, the facts on gun control, and I'm someone that's generally sympathetic to gun control, but, like, Correlation's not causality. And, right. and you look at Australia, the murder rate really hasn't changed. In Great Britain, um, the murder rate spiked when they got the, the most stringent gun control laws in the 1990s. And then uh, they, it flattened out through more police. They put tons more cops on the street. So there's this thing where, like, you just don't – there's lots of things that I think whether it's, uh, oh, my gosh, let's limit the influx of – Refugees, or let's. I, I think when, when we're most emotional in a tragedy, generally we're most susceptible to emotional fixes. That we have no idea whether or not they'd be effective or not. Right. So we can allow tragedies to have us make very bad decisions. I think you could argue that an awful lot of of the reaction to nine eleven, both domestically and internationally, uh, if we could go, if we could. Back that all stuff all back. We we would back a lot of it. You know? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I think you know the day after nine eleven, I certainly my gut reaction was is not necessarily what I want to live by either. You know, I think that, but there's a part of that's kind of natural. I guess um, the trick, <laughs> the trick is maybe during these time of crisis, not to double down on your core values, but not to be so so quick to to jettison either because um because we we don't we don't know what to do the next day i think you know grieving together is always right um uh, the idea that sometimes we can you know that we can make uh, things 
better. I mean, just take, for instance, wanting to be critical of the FBI. And even while the people were questioning the FBI, you know, this, the, 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 the murderer uh, was interviewed twice by the FBI. And uh, at the time that he was interviewed and, and watched, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And, you know, the implication with some of the people that were interviewing, well, which, why didn't they do more? Well, I wanted to say because of the Bill of Rights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he was, a, he was a United States citizen. And I think um, some of the rhetoric, you know, on some of the talk shows, the solution uh, that they're saying more of this, more law enforcement, more of that, uh, you know, is leaning towards what I would call a police state. And that's, you know, I think uh, we we need to be careful that we don't um, overreact. We should never underreact. And I actually, and I would say, and I know, you know, you and I agree about the gun thing. I would say um, that people just aren't even reasonable about that issue. Even the people who are extremist on, on the uh, second amendment who, who try to use correlational studies to say, well, this wouldn't change fail to look at the larger issue of our of our violent culture. I mean, our, our violence as a culture comes out in lots of different ways, uh, not just in in um, these kind of gun events. And I think why, why we absolutize uh, certain things um, maybe is a, is a larger issue on our extreme libertarianism that is not serving society that well. But that that's a whole other issue. I also think that part of living in a, an advanced technological society where we, we do have like pretty sophisticated and decent law enforcement and, and, and things like that, it almost makes it harder when stuff like this happens because we live in relative, like you're saying, we can predict tornadoes, we can, right. you know, so, you know, we, you know, it's really interesting. I was listen to this guy talk about the possibility for drone technology and how much safer it can make police work. Cause some of the innovations they are making self-piling drones. I mean, these drones with algorithms can figure out what shady people are and follow them all around until they're, they're safe to, uh, you know, to apprehend things like this. But still like with all this stuff, it makes it that much harder when the system breaks down or, or when it didn't break down, just the world is a tragic and flawed place with tragic and flawed people. And so things, so we can't, uh, legislate or technologize or engineer risk and evil out of it. Right. No, I think that's right. And it, without taking away human freedom. And it's the same way with the way we treat Benghazi. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, Bill Weimer, Bill Maher just talking about, look, in, in, in dangerous parts of the world, bad things happen, right. you know, like, and, and there's not always some tragic breakdown. Maybe there's things we can learn from it. Absolutely. And I think you want to take care of that and look at, but like this idea that like you could, between behind every sort of international disaster, you know, in def- in defense issues, that you can just find some, you know, willful uh, negligence or ignorance, or you know, somebody doesn't really care about defending America. I mean, that that kind of stuff just seems like not sophisticated enough to take reality seriously. Well, the other thing that's interesting, uh, this book I was reading, they did studies that during the Blitzkrieg. Uh, in in London, you know, it was about nine months, ten months. Um, that uh, the rate of depression and suicide went down, and that during the occupation in France, some kind of a similar thing happened. Um, most of the psychiatric beds were empty, and they, <laughs> they you know, this one anecdote was this uh, psychiatrist said one of his most neurotic p- patients during the Blitzkrieg 
became like an ambulance driver and totally recovered. And, um, you know, they talk about this idea that, you know, when you're coming together, when you understand, I mean, for instance, you can't live in denial during the blitzkrieg, that bad things are going to happen. It could happen. And that, you know, death is is a, of a real possibility. They also talk about the relative lack of uh, PTS in the Israeli army. And part of it is because everybody, it's a civilian army. You're close to the, you know, you're close to home. You're defending your home. Um, but the people who, and this is actually uh, true for folks coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, that there's a higher rate of post-traumatic stress in non-combatant uh, uh, yeah. folks. And, and, and that makes sense. Yeah. So there's a sense that in our isolation and our over-preoccupation with micromanaging our safety, what we have done is we've 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 actually increased our anxieties and, and increased our depression. Yeah, in Israel too. I mean, there's kind of this. Bill Maher's talked about this before. Like when 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 the attack happens in Israel, like a discotheque, they sweep it up, put the windows back, and like the discotheque opens back up. I mean, there's this there's a resilience uh, that I think they don't they don't sort of eternally memorialize every senseless act of violence. So right. I think we kind of have a tendency a little more to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with, there's been all kinds of conversation about, for instance, the roadside memorials. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. You know, and um, and I know have, I'm very close to a very tragic situation that I won't get into specifically. But um, one of the families just said, you know, we can't, we need to be done with this. And I think they probably... Um, even though you never get over something like that, kind of moved on. So it's time to move on. And I think you're right. There is a tendency. I mean, in in Israel, they're saying we're not going to give any victory to to the uh, to you know to terrorism in this way. Um, uh, an, an interesting anecdote. I, I uh, remember I took a group of people. I was over there with a group of people in Israel, and uh, we were sitting in one of the outdoor cafes that had been bombed. And I didn't tell the folks until after we were out of there. And it was it was interesting, their response, because they suddenly had this kind of uh, understandable. They're not used to living in that situation. But I said, did you stop and see how the people around us were? You know, the, the, you know this is uh, the, the ability to readapt or the ability to adapt and live. Matter of fact, in this book, Tribe, they talk about one of the you know, folks who was in Sarajevo, Sarajevo during the, the Bosnian War said that, you know, as horrible as it was, I missed those times when we came together and worked together and that we needed each other to survive each day. And uh, we we cherished one another and we cherished each day. And and there's part of me that's nostalgic for that. Yeah. I mean, certainly that the, there are the capacity for suffering to be in some sense, to have, at least have redemptive after effects. Or the is, fact yeah. is always true. Yeah, or the fact is that when we really are fully aware that we're in life and death situations, so whether that is in the aftermath of something as tragic as happened in Orlando, or, you know, when we are realizing everybody around us on one level or the other is involved in some kind of struggle, when we can be more attuned to trying to live as a community and and trying to be open to to be involved in each other's lives, then I think there's an opportunity for us to to learn from these disasters of what it means to be part of the human family um, and to be open to 
you know, look at things a little differently. I think you also have pointed out the danger. Uh, there's a danger that we can make the wrong conclusions from disasters and, and react as opposed to, to think about what's the best thing to do. Treasure in clay jars. Man.
Back off, big man. Let me work with the chicks, but not with me.